นโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังขังนมัสสามิเราต่อไปในบทเรื่องที่ชื่อว่าบทที่สองของการเคลื่อนไหวจากเส้นทางนี้และนี่เกี่ยวกับบทที่สองของการเคลื่อนไหวจากเส้นทางนี้และนี่เกี่ยวกับบทที่สองของการเคลื่อนไหวจากเส้นทางนี้และนี่เกี่ยวกับบทที่สองของการเคลื่อนไหวจากเส้นทางนี้และนี่เกี่ยวกับบทที่สองของการเคลื่อนไหวจากเส้นทางนี้และนี่เกี่ยวกับบทที่สองของการเคลื่อนไหวจากเส้นทางนี้และนี่เกี่ยวกับบทที่สองของการเคลื่อนไหวจากเส้นทางนี้และนี่เกี่ยวกับบทที่สองของการเคลื่อนไหวจากเส้นทางนี้และนี่ Life is truly a dream. All of its troubles I alone create. When I stop creating, the trouble stops. So that's a, a short verse that was written by um, uh, an American uh, former monk, uh, Bhikshu Hung Chao. Uh, he was one of the uh, the two. He was a novice at the time. He was a a, 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 um, a novice in the um, Northern Buddhist tradition, a disciple of Master Shunhua, and he and uh, Uh, Reverend Hung Shur, who was a uh, bhikshu, they bowed every, uh, took three steps and one bow all the way from Los Angeles to City of Ten Thousand Buddhas in um, uh, Mendocino County. So that's about uh, five or six hundred miles. Uh, took them two or three years to do, uh, all the way through Los Angeles, which is a, a big area in its um, in its own right, uh, all the way up the the. Uh, Highway One on the Pacific Coast Highway to uh, through San Francisco and then up into Mendocino County, uh, uh, about 120 miles north of, of San Francisco. So that's the same community that donated the land uh, for uh, a Bayagiri monastery where I, I lived for a long time. And uh, so I, I know um, uh, uh, Hung Chao disrobed after a number of years. He's now a, a history professor at the university in the, in the states. And uh, this was a verse that he wrote when uh, I think when he was on that that long bowing trip with uh, Reverend Hung Shur, um, so that uh, they had a lot of troubles along the way, <laughs> a lot of things to to negotiate with uh, uh, along the, the the highway with uh, uh, trucks that would like to drive as close as they possibly could to them as they were bowing along, and uh, friendly police officers, unfriendly police officers, uh, bikers. Uh, all kinds of uh, uh, interesting encounters that, that they had along the way. Um, well, actually, one of the, just to speak of it, one of the most um, impressive encounters was um, Hung Shu had taken a vow of silence, so uh, Hung Chao was doing all the talking. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, this this biker gang pulled up beside them, and this particularly large, sort of burly guy, le leather clad, with a big you know a big bushy beard. Um, Uh, and he pulled up his bike next to next to Hung Chao, and he took took hold of the front of his robes and, and picked him up with one hand. And he's not a small guy, uh, but Hung Chao was also a kind of karate expert, so he could handle himself too. But he didn't do anything <coughs> aggressive. He just let himself be picked up, and this guy says, "What are you doing?" And he said, "We're bowing up the the, the California coast uh, for the sake of world peace." 
put him down, <laughs> fished out a great wad of, of fairly grubby uh, dollar bill, uh, you know, $20 bills and $50 bills, and shoved it on the front of his robe and said, cool. <laughs> Revved up his bike and they rode off. And Peng Chao has kind of fished out this donation from the front of his robes. And so we got some funds for a few days. <laughs> so they had some um, interesting encounters. But, you know, life is truly a dream. All of its troubles I alone create. When I stop creating, the trouble stops. That doesn't mean that all of our debts are magically paid off or that our illnesses suddenly disappear. What it means is that the mind no longer creates a struggle, no longer creates trouble out of those experiences. That also does not mean that we are passive. We still go to the doctor if we're ill. We still do things to work with difficult issues. However, along the way, the mind does not create suffering out of any of those concerns. The arrows turn into flowers, perfume and beams of light. Um, in the imagery of the, the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree at the Enlightenment. Even if you're lying in bed in the hospice and it's the last minutes of your life, you're fine. This is what we mean by Dukkha Niroda. Even when there is great pain, we can experience that pain but not create suffering out of it. This is how the Buddha encourages us to be. Pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. So actually, um, the, I was invited to give a Dhamma talk today through the Angel Group in, uh, based in Bangkok, and uh, one of the themes I was talking about was how peace is not the same as passivity. And I, I appreciate that English is not the first language of everybody here, uh, a fair proportion, but not everyone. So to be passive means uh, to be uh, sort of not, uh, not take, deliberately not taking action, to... Uh, allow things to, to happen to you and to take a deliberately kind of non-responsive kind of numb um, stance in relationship to activity or engagement um, and to, to, um, to, to deliberately choose kind of stillness or, or switching off or disconnecting. So peace in the Buddhist sense does not mean passivity. It doesn't mean not taking action or not responding. Um, but oftentimes... In, uh, in, pra in Dhamma practice, also sometimes the way meditation teachings are presented, uh, either you know, verbally or in, in writings, um, when we, particularly when we talk about things like non-attachment or, or being the watcher, being the observer, um, that that can be held to think, oh, I should just observe, so therefore uh, if, if uh, the, the fire alarm goes off, I should just hearing, hearing, hearing... Uh, <laughs> Or if the, the monk next, uh, sitting next to us sort of keels over and has a seizure, it's like, oh, you know, hearing, hearing, seizuring, seizuring. <laughs> so that, well, I'm kind of being ridiculous, but kind of not being ridiculous, because sometimes that's the sort of instruction people f feel they're supposed to follow. And that just kind of, and using that kind of a principle, just being the watcher, being the observer, or, you know, or being the one who knows. And that uh, one of the things I like to stress, and I was, I was included in that talk today with the, the angel group um, uh, that our capacity to act is also part of the way things are. That we, when It's not like we are some sort of abstracted thing outside of nature. We are part of nature. We are nature. And so um, just watching is also just watching yourself taking action when the monk next to you keels over and starts having a seizure. <laughs> you watch yourself taking action. So that's also part of just watching. So 
uh, I, I, it's a, a point I, I make very often because it, it is uh, regularly misunderstood, and uh, because in a way it's you're, you're even when you're trying to be passive or quote unquote just watch your your choice to switch off and not do anything is actually a doing. <laughs> your uh, your your inaction is a doing. You're you're choosing to not respond. In a way, you're switching off your natural responsivity and your natural relatedness to the rest of the, the living system, the, the, the living world. So it's a, on one level, it's a, I'm just watching, but <laughs> it's like, no, you're deliberately switching off your innate relatedness uh, and so that that, um, uh, uh, say, I feel is, is a, an important, <laughs> an important principle to, to, uh, to understand and to get a, a feeling for. And the, 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 there's various stories that are told um, about this, you know, so just the way that people uh, uh, say, well, you know, I shouldn't do anything, I should just have faith, I should just trust that, you know, this is what I'm supposed to do, and, uh, you know, things will work out all right. But, you know, they, <laughs> it's uh, our capacity to take action, um, that, you know, when someone's having a seizure next to you or there's a fire, you know, the, the appropriate thing to do is to get up and leave the building <laughs> to help the person next to you who's just fallen over. Um, that, uh, that uh, you know, you're using your natural uh, intuitive and instinctive relatedness to the, to the living system. Um, one of the stories that's told as an example of this sort of um, r ridiculous kinds of faith is that, uh, um, I forget, well, it's, it's a story that's told many times where... Um, there's a, a huge flood happening, and this uh, this person's uh, in their in their home, and the and the the flood waters are rising and rising, and they go up to the upper story, and the flood water keeps rising, and they go up to the attic, and the flood water keeps rising, and they climb out of the skylight and onto the roof, and uh, all the way along, they said, "Well, um, yeah, I have I have great faith in in the Lord. God will provide. Um, if I pray hard enough, then you know, I'll, I'll be okay." And so the floodwaters have arisen, and this person's sitting on the, the roof of their house, thinking, "Well, you know, I'm praying really hard, and you know, God will provide." And then there's a, a, a rescue boat comes along, and says, oh, "Please, please get in the boat. You know, we're, we're picking up everyone in this area. That's all right. I'm fine. God will provide. You know, I'm okay." And then, and then uh, they say, "Were you sure?" You know, say, "Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah, I'm sure God will look after me." And then that boat goes off, and then another one comes along. You know, about half an hour later, they. Please get on board. You know, you're, you're the last of the people in this area. So I'm fine. I'm fine. God will provide. And the water gets higher and higher, and it's almost up to the ridge. And this this, this fellow's sitting on the ridge of the house, thinking, "Dear Lord, you know, I have great faith in you. Please, please help." And then a helicopter comes along and drops down a ladder and said, yeah, "Get on board. Get on board. You're going to go under any minute." Says, I'm all right. God will provide. And then. <clears throat> They say you you you're you're really in danger here. You know, please get on board. Just grab the ladder and we'll we'll we'll, we'll rescue. You. I'm fine. God will provide. Then the water rises up and the guy drowns, and then arrives at the pearly gates, <laughs> and uh, it's a bit disgruntled. I said, I had great faith. I trusted in the Lord, and and yeah, and um, and yeah, you know, uh, and I turned away a couple of a couple of boats and a helicopter, but still I drowned. And then so, you know, how come? This is really unfair. I thought I was demonstrating great faith. And then, uh, and then St. Peter at the gate says, um, I've got a message from, um, from, uh, from the Lord. Uh, he said, uh, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. Why didn't you get on board? <laughs> so if I 
I may borrow that from a different tradition. <laughs> There's another one, actually, a very similar story from the Indian tradition about uh, uh, a, a chela who has great faith in their guru. And, you know, the guru will look after everything. I have great faith in the guru. The guru, guru will always protect. So this person is uh, walking down a, down a, a street and this, uh, this elephant goes crazy and is charging down the street. And, and the mahout on top of the elephant is saying, get out of the way, get out of the way, the elephant's out of control. And this, this uh, disciple is standing in the street saying, no, Guruji will look after me. Guruji will, will, um, uh, he said, I will always be protected if I'm a faithful disciple. And then the, the elephant's getting closer and closer, get out of the way, get out of the way, I'm out of control. And then he <coughs> said, I'm fine, Guruji said, I'll always be protected. And then, uh, uh, then <laughs> gets knocked over by the elephant and the, the, the disciple crawl, crawls along to the ashram. Says, Guruji, uh, I have great faith in you. And uh, this elephant uh, came down the street and said, I can see. And he said, well, um, but you know, you said that if I was your faithful disciple, I'd always be protected. And he said, well, didn't you hear me shouting through the mahout, get out of the way? <laughs> Why didn't you listen? So, so again, neither of those stories are absolutely perfect, but uh, they, they demonstrate that it's a passivity or, or uh, faith ba- uh, based on, on foolishness uh, can, uh, can have painful results. So similarly, if we take an instruction like, well, the Ajahn said, just be the observer, be the watcher, and we are, we are watching as we experience the, the, the ligaments in our knee <laughs> breaking up, or the, 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 the discs in our knees or our back kind of popping out. Oh, I'm just, I'd said I'd, I'd sit here for, for two hours and, and investigate the pain, but all the signals you're getting is, this is, this is too much, my knees are breaking up, uh, this is this is causing permanent damage. Well, I'm just going to watch. I'm just going to watch, and then then you have to be carried out of the meditation hall. That uh, that is not a, a fantasy either. That that kind of thing has has happened in this community in the past, and that and the person thinking, oh, I was just watching the pain, but they, you weren't uh, actually just watching. There was also a, a switching off. And, you know, it's it's well intentioned to endure a painful feeling, but also. The intuitive sense, the body's own intelligence, is saying this is enough. <laughs> you know, you're stretching things beyond what the the system can tolerate. Uh, you know, this is um, uh, this is uh, gonna this is gonna have painful consequences. And then people, you know, wrecking their 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 knees, their joints, um, and taking a long, long time for them to recover you know, on account of of well-intentioned zealousness, but not. Uh, not receiving or not paying attention to the other signals that the body is uh, is putting out, so not not causing any insult to anyone sitting on chairs. <laughs> this is this is uh, say part of the um, the quality of peace uh, is that action is not an intrusion upon peace. Action, choice, decision making, when it's in tune with Dhamma, is doesn't disturb. Peace. It's not a, an intrusion on the universe. It's not a something that's uh, upsetting the way things are. When action, uh, decision, uh, choice is in tune with with dhamma, then um, decisions are made. You, know, you change your posture, or you you get <laughs> you uh, uh, you uh, adapt to a situation not out of, uh, of weakness or impatience or lack of resolution, but because the intuitive sense: this is the time to move. This is the, you know, 
this is there's an offer to help from a, a boat or a helicopter. Okay, get on the boat. You know, time to go. Um, the, uh, I wanted to sit here for two hours without moving. The the message I'm getting from my body is it's time to move. Um, I had that resolution, and uh, maybe it was it was uh, well intentioned, but uh, the signals I'm getting from the body are it's time to move. So let's move and work on my my Aditana Baramita a different way or on a different occasion. So uh, uh, that um, the, this is a, a significant principle. And I also wanted to read the um, story of the end of Anattapindika's life, which uh, is found in Sutta 143, the advice to Anattapindika in the middle-length discourses, because it also relates to um, you know, physical pain and the end-of-life experience. So uh, um, Anattapindika was a great, um, very wealthy and generous donor. He provided the the land uh, and also the initial buildings for the Jetavana monastery. And uh, at this point, he's quite uh, quite ill, and so uh, this is um, somebody who's a friend of his goes to the goes to the Buddha and. A friend of Anattapindika is uh, asked to go to the Buddha and saying, uh, please, uh, please, Venerable Sir, the householder Anattapindika is afflicted, suffering and gravely ill. He pays homage with his head at the Blessed One's feet. Then go to the Venerable Sariputta, pay homage in my name with your head at his feet and say, Venerable, Sar- Venerable Sir, the householder Anattapindika is afflicted, suffering and gravely ill. Then say, it would be good, Venerable Sir, if the Venerable Sariputta would come to the residence of the householder Anattapindika out of compassion. So Venerable Sariputta goes to visit Anattapindika on his sickbed. Then Sariputta um, goes to see him, and in a friendly way he says, um, Householder, I hope you're getting, uh, getting well. I hope you're comfortable. Uh, I hope your painful feelings are subsiding and not increasing. And that uh, they're subsiding, not their increase, is apparent. And with very sort of, in a, a very dry manner, and very polite, uh, Anattapindika says, Venerable Sariputta, I am not getting well. I am not comfortable. My painful feelings are increasing, not subsiding. Their increase and not their subsiding is apparent. <laughs> Just as if a strong man was splitting my head open with a sharp sword, so too, violent winds, like energies cut, you know, cut through my head. I'm not getting well. Just as if a, a strong man were tightening a tough leather strap around my head as a headband, so too, there are violent pains in my head. Uh, and so on and so forth. So then uh, Venerable Sariputta gives him a Dhamma talk um, and uh, about the, reflecting on the, the six senses and, and not clinging, not clinging to the eye, the ear, the nose, the, bo- the body, um, uh, and the mind. And um, then um, at the end of that, this Dhamma talk, again, you can, you can read this yourself, Sutta 143, the Majjhima Nikaya, um, he gives this this thorough uh, discourse about recognizing each of the six senses and letting go of, of aspects of clinging um, uh, with um, uh, with respect to the six senses, also with, with respect to the the four elements, with respect to the five khandas. It's like don't cling, don't cling, don't cling, kind of to, to the to any of this. Um, and uh, and then even to the the refined states of consciousness like infinite space, uh, infinite consciousness, neither perception nor non-perception. 
And he finishes with, Householder, you should train thus. I will not cling to this world, and my consciousness will not be dependent on this world. I will not cling to the world beyond, and my consciousness will not be dependent on the world beyond. Thus you should train. Householder, you should train thus. I will not cling to what is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, encountered, sought after, and examined by the mind, and my consciousness will not be dependent on that. Thus you should train. When this was said, the householder Anatapindika wept and shed tears. And the Venerable Ananda, who was along there as well, said, Oh, uh, are you foundering, householder? Are you sinking? And then Anatapindika replies, I'm not foundering. Uh, I'm not kind of desperate or, or in pain, uh, Venerable Ananda. I'm not sinking. But although I have long waited upon the teacher and bhikkhus worthy of esteem, never before have I heard such a talk on the Dhamma. Uh, and uh, he says, such talk on the Dhamma householder is not given to lay people clothed in white. Such talk on the Dhamma is usually given to those who have gone forth. Well then, Venerable Sariputta, let such talk on the Dhamma be given to lay people clothed in white. There are clansmen with little dust in their eyes who are wasting away through not hearing such talk on the Dhamma. There will be those who will understand the, the Dhamma. Then, after giving the householder Anatapindika this advice, the Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Ananda rose from their seats and departed. Soon after they had left, the householder Anatapindika died and reappeared in the two-seater heaven. Then he uh, he uh, uh, appears as a deva uh, to the Buddha later that night and then uh, announces that um, he has uh, been appreciative of the Buddha's teaching and he's reappeared in the two-seater heaven. So um, that is, uh, I think, very uh, interesting that even though he had so much kind of misery and pain, kind of ex extreme... Uh, say difficulty in having that instruction on not clinging in these all these many and various ways. Then the tears he sheds are not because of the, the his head being feeling like it's being split open and, and such like, but the tears are tears of joy at uh, receiving these teachings that are, are helping to establish a, a a very skillful attitude. He doesn't complain about his his illness. I'm not getting well. I'm not comfortable. <laughs> My painful feelings are increasing, but. His mind is not making a problem out of that, and what's uh, a source of joy and delight, his tears are from the, the delight at, uh, at, uh, in receiving these Dhamma teachings and, and really appreciating hearing such profound Dhamma just before his passing away. So there's a few items there. Please, uh, any questions, thoughts, reflections? Of course, it would help to have two uh, great beings coming to visit you on your deathbed. <laughs> but, uh, but still, I feel that's a, a, um, that the, the example of um, that even if in, in a lot of physical pain, you know, my, you know, my pains are increasing, not decreasing, uh, still what makes a difference is being able to, to change the attitude. And the teachings were a catalyst for that shift of view and able to to help the mind to be not dependent on the six senses or the four elements or the you know, five khandas, any of these aspects of, of experience. Thoughts, feelings? Okay, so to continue. So <clears throat> the next section is called Sensory Experience Leading to Nibbana. Dependent origination is only one way of describing the process, the development of an experience. It represents the process of experience affected by ignorance. 
when the mind is not awake and not seeing clearly. However, there's also the possibility of experiencing things through a fully awake mind. In the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses, the Buddha gives a description of a process of experience which is free from ignorance. It begins with interest, chanda. All things are rooted in interest. With interest, chanda, as the root, then all things are born of attention, manasikara. Then there is contact, pasa, so that uh, bringing attention to, you know, looking at say, the, the carpet, uh, uh, rooted in interest, born of attention, so the attention resting on that object, and pasa, the sense contact, the light uh, entering the eye and then registering um, in, the, in consciousness, eye consciousness, as you know, that's, uh, that's the sense contact. And then from, uh, from that contact, uh, the, there's the, the paying of attention. This is the paying of attention to the present. The mind turns toward that sense contact, and from that contact, feeling, Vedana, arises. That feeling can be pleasant, painful, or neutral. The Buddha uses the phrase diverging into feelings, or converging on feelings, Vedana Samosarana. You can use the image of a tree to picture this process. Interest is at the root. Attention is where the roots come together and the trunk arises from the ground. Contact, pasa, is like the trunk. When the branches spread out, this is the spreading of feelings, diverging into feelings. And so um, when I was putting this book together, I created a, a little picture of a tree. You can possibly add this to the um, graphic display here on, on the wall. But... Um, page uh, 137. It's just, a, again, it's my own diagram. It's not something that you find in classical Buddhist texts, but it's just a, a, a handy aid memoir for myself, or how it sort of takes shape in my mind, and as a, as a tree with the fruit, kind of apples hanging off the branches. Then significantly, in contrast to dependent origination, instead of feeling, Vedana, leading to craving and clinging and so on, in this case, the mind has a very different relationship to feeling. You can envision the next three steps in the sequence as the big branches turning into small branch, smaller branches and then into twigs. The next three links are headed by concentration, samadhi, then dominated by mindfulness, sati, and surmounted by wisdom, panya. So headed by concentration, dominated by mindfulness, surmounted by wisdom. Concentration, mindfulness and wisdom. Concentration focuses the attention. Mindfulness brings awareness of how the feeling is changing and the context of the feeling. And wisdom recognizes that the nature of all feelings is anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanent, unsatisfactory, impersonal. The mind is fully awake and aware. All varieties of feeling are attended to and the mind is in tune with them. The mind is not drawn into grasping the pleasant or opposing the painful. The mind sees feelings in their true light and holds them in an environment of mindfulness and wisdom, satipanya. The mind is attuned to their nature. And then the next phase of that process, this is in the Book of the Tens, Sutta number 58, Anguttara 10.58. All things yield deliverance as their essence. You can imagine the fruit that grows on our beautiful tree. It's covered in the fruits of deliverance, vimuti, 
liberation. Every feeling that has been known and understood, whether pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, bears the fruit of liberation. The next link is merging in the deathless, amatogadha. All things merge in the deathless. Following the image of our beautiful tree, the tree covered in the fruits of liberation, then merging in the deathless is represented by all of the branches and twigs and leaves and fruit being surrounded by and merged with the atmosphere, the air. Finally, all things terminate in Nibbāna. Terminating in Nibbāna are all things. The Buddha described all of this in order to help us to develop, uh, to develop a skillful way of recognizing our experience and seeing how things work in the light of wisdom. What is the process of experiencing when the mind is awake? So, and in my little picture of the tree, um, you've got the, the death, death that's represented by the atmosphere, the air around the tree, and then it's difficult to depict it, but Nibbana, the arrows are kind of pointing out to you, the reader. So that's it. pointing out of the page. I haven't got a really 3D. Maybe if uh, on a screen you could do a kind of a 3D representation, but it's like the, Nibbana, uh, the terminating in Nibbana is terminating in the mind that's reading this book or looking at this picture. Oh, but, um, that if the attitude is, uh, say, appropriately in tune with, with Dhamma, and uh, then the result is peacefulness. The Buddha described all of this in order to help us to develop a skillful way of recognizing our experience and seeing how things work in the light of wisdom. What is the process of experiencing when the mind is awake? This guidance is a way of informing our meditation, informing our practice. When we use words like merging in the deathless, there's an easy way to understand that. We recognize that what we took to be a thing, quote-unquote, was only given solidity by our attitude. We gave it reality by the way we attended to it. Merging in the deathless is recognizing that the apparent solidity, the perception of thingness, was imparted to the flow of experience by a mistaken attitude. There was no absolute thing that was born and there is no thing that dies. So before I go on, there's a lot there in that. Any questions, thoughts? Yes. Um, so at which point in, specifically in, in interrelational conflict, where's, where, where's the point of passive, so in, in avoiding engagement with interpersonal, so if you've got... Um, an afflictive relationship with something in the community. Mm-hmm. At which point is not engaging with it passive, and at which point is it skillful? So there's a sort of there's a point where it's like, oh, there could there might be suppression, or maybe having a conversation might be the most skillful thing to do. And or there might be often is the case one person wants to talk about something and another doesn't. Mm-hmm. So one will think the other one's being passive or avoidant uh, yeah passive or avoidant the other will see it as skillful that seems to be a really tricky sort of grey area where yeah is there a kind of is that just down to work it out between you that's kind of it yeah. <laughs> every situation is unique and so and also it's, it's where that whole the element of, of uh, mindfulness and full awareness satisampajanya wise reflection comes into it like so weighing up the situation like well i feel like um the, you know the buddha said not to avoid not to associate with fools but to associate with the wise well yeah you know, he's foolish so keep away from him well uh, okay that's what 
I could take that stance, but there is perhaps something that would be good to talk about. So um, now what's my motivation for talking about it? Do I want to set that person straight so I'll be happy? Or do I, is the motivation that that person's causing themselves a lot of difficulty, not just with me, but with all sorts of other people. So would it be helpful to let them know that the way they're acting is creating this kind of conflict? So first of all, to check your own motivation and to you know, see where you're coming from. Uh, and my, my rule of thumb is if I want you to be different so that I'll be happy, then leave it. Uh, if it's, it necessarily has to include the other person so that it's like, is it for their benefit as well as just making me feel better or more comfortable? Um, so it's, uh, so that is, is useful, important if that's part of it. And then weighing up the situation, you say, okay, well, it seems like it'd be a good idea to, to mention to, you know, this area to, with this person. So let's see if we can find a convenient moment or maybe there'll be a time when things come up. Uh, and so that you can look at it that way, or you can recognize, okay, well, this other person, is, you know, we've had a bit of a clash, so that if I go anywhere near this person, you know, alarms go off. So, but they, they're good friends with this other person. So if she talks with him and says, oh, you know, uh, Deepa would like to have a chat sometime, you know, what do you think? <laughs> um, then that might be an entry point. Well, what do you want to talk about? Oh well, you know, it's just uh, be, I thought it'd be helpful. So you can approach through a, a, a connector or a friend or an intermediary, uh, and this, and then if that leads leads to possibility of a conversation, okay. If it leads to more division, okay. Well, you, you learn from that. So, yeah. And so every uh, every such situation, you you can't generalize. So weighing weighing things up with that mindfulness and wisdom, mindfulness and, and full awareness, and um, not uh, not presuming that it's because you think uh, your interpretation of a, of, a, of a situation is one way, but uh, uh, somebody else's interpretation might be very different. So to uh, to be weighing things up and considering, okay, well this is, it looks like this way to, for me, is that the whole story? Are there other perspectives on it? And so, again, another helpful way of, of um, if you've had a clash with somebody, then you, if you go to someone who's a, a friend or you know you, you get on well with and say, well, I've had this clash with so-and-so and it, uh, it seemed to be about this particular issue. Um, uh, am I getting something wrong? Or did, how does that look to you? Did you, did you know about that? Um, well, uh, can, you, can you let me know if I'm seeing this, if I've only got half the information or I'm seeing this, seeing this wrong, how does it look to you? So you're just getting a, a, a bit of input from, from others who are saying, well, uh, yes, uh, I fully agree with you. <laughs> I've been thinking about that for the last week myself, so, hmm, okay, this does seem to need addressing. Or, or they might say, what are you talking about? Really? Oh, it doesn't seem that way to me at all. And you go, oh, Really? No, just that's not how I've seen things. Oh, so just getting a bit of feedback from a sympathetic source is also very helpful. Yeah, in the in the past, I've, when I've had those sort of strange encounters or challenging encounters, then yeah, you know, literally sort of after having some kind of you know, eye-opening exchange, then 
uh, one of the other monks who was there come, came up to me and said, can we have a reality check? <laughs> did, I think I just heard you know, X, Y, Z. Did, did you hear that? And I said, I did, I did. So, so I wasn't dreaming. I said, no, no, I, I heard that too. I said, oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> because of like somebody made like a really kind of outrageous assertion or accusation or whatever. So that just checking in with with um, people whose were you know perspective you can trust and and then using your you know as much mindfulness and wisdom as you can draw upon. Would it be fair to say that the the, the path of non not non conflict but non talking it out is is a, rel- a relatively safe way to, as opposed to the sort of Let's talk about this, you know, every time. Well, you can overshare <laughs> and uh, and overengage, but you also you can underengage, and then, and then things can fester. You know that the as that the Buddha said that rain soddens that which is covered up, but that which is open to the air, you know, the rain does not does not cause to rot. So, just and uh, not talking about things or. or um, uh, or feeling like that there's a forbidden subject you can't talk about that often that in the long run that doesn't help and so some way of of letting it be known that that um or, or addressing what what you're feeling like, this feels really off or it doesn't feel uh, uh skillful at all and finding some way at least sharing that with a sympathetic ear someone that, that you can connect with and who won't be intimidated or, or challenged by that? Just to say, this is what I mean. Like that, that conversation I had about this sort of the eye-popping comments. <laughs> one of my one of my brother monks. Um, it's like just to say, you know, that's what I I heard, or that's what it looked like to me. What, what did it look like to you? So again, you know, a problem shared is a problem halved, and just sometimes that uh, recognition of yeah, this is difficult or yeah this is really weird I'm not sure what we're going to do about this but then you know there's a sense of of um, uh, see support there you're not just sort of burying it or keeping it completely hidden but it's it's something that is being addressed but the 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 thing to to be most guarding against is coming from a reactive place where uh, they just they, you see some, something's really off. Uh, that's really bad. You know, he shouldn't do this. Or she she did that again. Rah! Kind of jumping in and reacting. And that almost always has a negative, painful results. So at least some degree of responsivity. Like, oh well, I didn't like that, did I? Mm. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> that's uh, that that pushed my buttons. You know, and uh, you know, you, you you and then at least some kind of a buffer whereby. Right, well, what do I do with that? Rather than reacting and just um, coming straight out with some kind of comment or, or a, um, without any kind of consideration. Sometimes there isn't much time to play with, but just some degree of responsivity, whether like, oh, you know, that, was, you know, that was really exciting or that's really frightening or that's really irritating. And then knowing, to, just that mental state that it's arisen and seen as a reaction going on because if we just follow a reaction of liking or disliking or or fear whatever it might be then 
in that moment, the mind is making, is giving that a false solidity. It's making, that's a real thing. That really is a problem. That really is uh, attractive. That's really good. Or that's really, uh, uh, really uh, worrying. And it's given that solidity by our attitude. And that, and that reactive habit makes it a, a real thing, a really attractive or really dangerous or really, uh, really off. And the, the qualities of mindfulness and wisdom doesn't mean that we don't take action or do something, but it's saying that's a strong reaction <laughs> in, in the face of, of that, that event or that, that, what just happened. And, there's, and that amount of space around it uh, helps there to be a skillful response, a skillful way of relating to it, rather than just uh, the mind is recognizing this is an event, this is a, uh, a ripple in the ex- experiential field just happened, you know, a big loud one, but it's just, it is, it, it's not solid, it can't be something that's absolutely real. And that's the element that, that uh, allows there to be a, a, a kind of a, a mindful and appropriate uh, connection with it so to continue there's just another page or so here Ajahn Chah put it this way all the things of this world are merely conventions of our own creation having established them we get lost in them giving rise to all kinds of trouble and confusion that's the opening passage of a talk called convention and liberation in case you're interested one of the Great statements. <laughs> I think you could just take that, take those two sentences and sit on them for a month. All the things of this world are merely conventions of our own creation. Having established them, we get lost in them, giving rise to all kinds of trouble and confusion. So, if we take a principle like merging in the deathless, quote-unquote, it is really just seeing the empty nature of all things. It is simply seeing the dependent and conditioned nature of all things. Ajahn Chah also said that we determine things into existence. The last link is, quote, terminating in Nibbana, unquote. Reflecting on the image of the tree, if the air represents the deathless, we can wonder, what is the symbol of Nibbana? Then it came to my mind that since Nibbana has no form at all, perhaps the terminating in Nibbana, quote, unquote, is the peace-filled awareness of this mind, knowing the image. This is where it terminates, in this very heart. This is where the image arises and passes away, where these words and forms are being contemplated. If that ending is clearly seen, if the empty nature of all things is clearly seen, the result of that seeing is great peacefulness. And that is the primary nature of Nibbana, peace. We can be staying in a place that looks like paradise, such as Provence in the spring, which is where I love these. <laughs> I was in Provence for a lot of these. This uh, a lot of the material of this book was this south of France in the springtime, you know, surrounded by beautiful green, uh, fresh spring leaves and the, the fragrance of lavender and all, all those good things. Provence, south of France in the springtime. We can be staying in a place that looks like paradise, such as Provence in the spring, or a tropical garden in Chiang Mai, which is where I gave some of the other. <laughs> not to make anyone envious or jealous <laughs> yeah you know, Hertfordshire in a gray uh, gray March day is also part of the, the experiential field 
A tropical garden in Chiang Mai is surrounded by beautiful countryside and noble friends. Probably all of us have noticed at certain times that even when surrounded by wholesome, beautiful, noble and inspiring things, the mind can still create suffering. Is that the case? Again, just guesswork. <laughs> we can be in paradise but still make ourselves miserable. When we look at the cycle of dependent origination, we see that things can end painfully or, with a skillful attitude, they can end very beautifully. Ajahn Sumedho summed this up in a very clear way. If you start with ignorance, you end up with dukkha. If you start with awareness, you end with nibbana. Or more briefly, quote, ignorance complicates everything, unquote. So that was a, a teaching here, right here in the Salam, uh, when uh, he was uh, leading the winter retreats here in the late 80s, early 90s, um, he uh, used the theme of dependent origination many, many times over. And that was his uh, way of, uh, say, um, describing uh, the Avicca Pachaya Sankara, his sort of rendering of Avicca Pachaya Sankara, uh, the uh, ignorance conditions uh, formations. He would sum it up as ignorance complicates everything. That is the simple version. The work and practice of Dhamma is then to arouse and sustain the quality of awakened awareness. The more the heart is able to sustain this quality of awakened awareness and wisdom, the more the heart can be completely in tune with the reality of the present experience. This attunement conditions the realization of Nibbana, peacefulness. We bring attention to and sustain it on the present reality. This is the work that we all need to do if we wish to free the heart and realize peacefulness. And then I just quote that, uh, that little sutta, um, Sutta 58 in the Book of the Tens. Rooted in interest are all things, born of attention are all things, arising from contact are all things, diverging into or converging onto feelings are all things, headed by concentration are all things, dominated by mindfulness are all things, surmounted by wisdom are all things, Yielding deliverance as their essence are all things. Merging in the deathless are all things. Terminating in Nibbana are all things. It's also maybe worth mentioning that um, those of you who've done retreats with uh, Goenkaji, um, probably quite a few of you, uh, so his focus on Vedana, on feeling, uh, as I understand it, is um, informed very strongly by this, this particular teaching and that um, converging on feelings, Vedana Samosarana, uh, uh, or uh, converging on all, feel, on all feelings or diverging into feelings are all things. So that, um, as I understand, it was a, a key teaching in the mind of, of uh, Goenkaji and also why in uh, uh, where we have in the dependent origination cycle that Vedana conditions Tanha and as I was saying with the, the second exit point from the cycle that that bridge between feeling and, and craving that's the key point for attention that uh, that's why Vedana feeling is, is, ta is by some, not just Goenkaji but many many uh, teachers point to mindfulness of feeling that's <laughs> the the uh, uh, the, the key point. So that in this particular teaching, this Sutta 58, the Book of the Tens, 
you know, the, the first part of it, uh, bo- uh, rooting the interest, attention, contact, that's the, uh, uh, and then leading up to feeling, that's a sort of the structure of experience. And then working with that experience is by concentration, mindfulness, and, and wisdom. And then the, the result of that is deliverance, uh, merging in the deathless, and nibbana. But the, the setup, um, again, Vedana is the, sort of the, the key point. It's where the setup meets the, 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 the attitude of working with the experiential field. So uh, it's also, you know, Vedana is a, a key point within this. But if, if that uh, whole process is based upon vicha, upon awakened awareness, um, then when that, the contact has led to, to feeling, pleasant feeling, painful feeling, neutral feeling, then headed by concentration, dominated by mindfulness, surmounted by wisdom, then the, the result is nibbana. If, it's, if the feeling is uh, uh, based upon, or is heavily conditioned by ignorance, avicca, then you get to up, uh, tanha, upadana, bhava, jati, uh, sokapari, deva, dukkha, domana, supayasa, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. Dukkha is the result. Any questions, thoughts, comments? Yes. Merging in the deathless. Amat Ogada. So, uh, merging in the deathless are all things. So, uh, it's a, it's a, an interesting phrase. It has been interpreted... Um, as like the uh, or like the um, uh, the the same kind of languaging of uh, say the the Atman is it sort of dissolves or is absorbed into the Brahman the in in, Ved, in Vedanta or like uh, actually the way that that um, the, uh, the 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 long poem the light of Asia. Um, Ends with the, the phrase "the dewdrop slips into the shining sea," like the the the, the little self dissolves into the big self. That, so that merging in the deathless um, is sometimes taken in that same kind of imagery. Um, but I would say that's that's mistaken. Uh, and there's actually in, in our, the book that Ajahn Pasana and I did about Nibbana called "The Island." Uh, there's a whole little section I do upon on that phrase about merging in the deathless. So rather than the, 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 the Atman dissolving into Brahman or the, um, the dewdrop slipping into the shining sea or becoming, you know, me becoming one with everything, um, that uh, it's more uh, that uh, the image I use to try and explain it is that uh, it's, it's more like the illusion dissolves and the reality of things is revealed so that the, uh, all things merge in the deathless so that the, the mind that comes out of a dream state merges with waking reality. It's, a, it's not like there, there was a separate identity or, or a separate thing that then dissolves into the, the, the sea of the deathless. Or the, uh, it's rather more like a, a dream that dissolves and then the mind wakes up to the, the, uh, the true reality of the, or the apparent reality of the waking life. It's not a perfect image, but it's uh, it's trying to go. Uh, the Buddha was quite specific in uh, in not going along with that Vedic model of the Atman dissolving into Brahman, but rather 
um, it's a, the illusion is dis, the illusion of things is is what ends that all things merge in the deathless. Uh, amat ogada is the Pali. Amat ogada. Amat amat is deathless. Ogada is to merge, to merge or to to dissolve. Um, and it's a phrase that is used quite a few times uh, in the, in the in the Pali canon in different different teachings. Um, but uh, so that that was the best I could come up with is rather than the the self dissolving into sort of a, me becoming one with everything, uh, or the, the ego dissolving into um, or becoming merged with a, the, the, a greater reality, is coming out of a dream, uh, and uh, the the true reality being recognized. Is it does um, merging and dissolving? Uh, it seems very different. Like merging, isn't like it seems like. Uh, for me, because my English is not so good, but imagine just transforming. So, is it then Well, merge, merging is. Um, so if um, if uh, if I took some sugar and then stirred it up, then you could say the sugar has dissolved in the water, or that the the sugar molecules have have merged with the the uh, the water. That you could. Um, you could use quite validly. You could use both terms. But it seems like merging. There is still the reality is still there. The not the the mundane reality is still there with the uh, nibbana. Uh, so that's um, well. <laughs> it depends on how you think of the words, but uh, it's. Um, like the merging in the deathless is you're seeing the 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 empty or transparent nature of what seem what seemed to be a solid independent thing like a person or a carpet or a glass um, that merging in the deathless is to recognize oh that the thingness that the mind gives to it is can only be relative it's not there's not absolutely anything there there never was any solid, permanent, independent thing there. It's not uh, reaching Nibbana. It's more like... <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, well, words are used in slightly different ways. It's, it's kind of... Um, m- uh, mostly it's used to be the same kind of thing or very closely related to Nibbana. But the... Uh, I mean, in that sequence, it's two different things. You have merging in the deathless are all things, then terminating in nibbana. So that experience of peacefulness is the uh, like the end result of that seeing of the empty nature. So having seen that a thing, all things merge in the deathless. That they, having seen that they are they're intrinsically empty, then the feeling in the heart is peacefulness. Like ah. Nibbana is a description of a of a feeling, of peacefulness. It's not a, a place or a. Is a feeling. It's a description of a feeling, the feeling of of peacefulness, coolness. It's not a place. <laughs> <laughs>
There's another section in the island that also says that Nibbana is actually, the heading is Nibbana is not a place. There's a, the, uh, in, from the Melinda, the questions of King Melinda, there's a, a whole section of it is called Nibbana is not a place. It's really, really quite uh, skillfully talked about. It's uh, well. It, it doesn't say yeah, nibbana is is vedana, but it's it's a description of uh, uh, a, a peaceful quality that is knowable by the mind. Yeah, I cannot imagine. <laughs> huh? I cannot imagine. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, as you, as you. Uh, as you wish. That's how. If you, uh, if you're interested, there's a, a whole 400-page book <laughs> that we did on uh, nibbana. That, uh, but that, uh, that's how I feel it's most skillful. It's a, it's a description of an experience, uh, it, uh, and that, that its primary quality is is peacefulness. Yeah, the words are uh, uh, you know, are naturally limited. They can only be, a, like I say, a convenient fiction. They can they can point to uh, the reality of things, but they can't really contain or, or fully embody the reality of things. But yeah, anyway, if you take take a, a look, in, if you want to, in the, the book, the island, and then there is a. A section about that very phrase about merging in the deathless. So, uh, if that brings up more questions in your mind, then please ask them. But um, do take take a look because it's uh, it's to me it's interesting that the the Buddha was uh, he was very conscious of the philosophies of his time, and he very deliberately didn't talk about uh, a, a true self or a real self, and that he uh, his teaching was all about. What is not self? What is not atta? You know, anatta, and and the, the model of the atman, uh, sort of going through its sort of evolution or passing from one life to another, and then when spiritual evolution has come to its fulfillment, then the atman dissolves into brahman. The kind of the the the, the small self dissolves into the the kind of universal uh, reality. He very deliberately didn't pick, use that model. He didn't talk in those ways, and so. Um, then to taking a phrase like merging in the deathless, then it, uh, it's, I feel it's, it's important to, to pick it up and to sort of com- contemplate. Okay, so merging <laughs> with the deathless. What does deathless mean? What is merging? To, to use your own meditation to explore those things. So in the, in the past, I've, I've done that a lot, just with coming across different aspects of the teaching, often listening to Dhamma talks by, by Lumpur Sumedho, all these, uh, particularly the, all those years, he was giving um, explanations uh, about dependent origination. Then, you know, I'd literally take a word or a couple of words and say, "Okay, avijja pachaya sankara." So ignorance complicates everything. So avijja, not vijja. So what, what what's what is that? As a your own within your own experience, or uh, how does that? Uh, uh, how does the mind feel that or know that? Or, 
And then sometimes when you pick up a particular word or a phrase, then I would find, I haven't got a clue what that means. <laughs> what, what does that mean? So, or like, uh, like Sankara, volitional formations. I remember, volitional formations, what the heck is that? Like a, a phrase you'd never ordinarily use, ordinarily use in English language, yeah. in ordinary household conversations. <laughs> you got any volitional formations around here? Or? <laughs> I don't know. Right. It's like no one. It's not a phrase that you would ever use in ordinary English. What does that mean? Volitional formations. So a formation, okay. A volition, okay. But a volitional formation. So a thing that you've decided to make, or a thing made of your deciding, your ability to decide, or huh, what? So I would so take a, a word like that and just reflect on it and explore it and, and for a long a long time it would just be like nope <laughs> don't really know what that means don't have a feeling for it but then over time as you practice with particular teachings or, or terminology and you see how it's used in different places then slowly you begin to get a feel for how uh, what, what things refer to It's so what we would call a contemplative process, you know, just to, to sort of pick things up and explore. And, and Ajahn Chah's style, of his own style of practice and, and his style of teaching is very much that sort of picking things up, exploring, seeing how things work, and then finding uh, analogies or comparing them with things in, uh, in the, the world that he knew and understood to, to get a, a sense for how things, how things fit, how they work. And then, uh, you know, then the, the teaching and the practice, it really, uh, it's not just um, uh, sort of a set of words or ideas, but there's a much more of a, a, a feeling for, for uh, how, things, how things function. And then you become much more able to use those teachings and practices from, a, from personal experience. It's a, as a, um, like you, you know what it's, what it's referring to. It's not just an, an idea or a set of words, but you have a, you can connect that to your own, your, your own experience. Okay, well that was the end of that chapter, so let's, let's leave it there for today. Sadhu <laughs> Sadhu